Thank you for downloading our podcast. We are tempted to pursue a more tangible religion. We can fall into a trap and think we need more than Christ. But Hebrews assures us that Christ is all we need. Join us as we study Hebrews to learn more about our great Melchizedekian priest who presides in heaven and calls us on this wonderful earthly pilgrimage. Hebrews 12 is a chapter where the whole metaphor of the marathon hits home. This is where the author is using the metaphor of the Olympic Games, uh, going through this and reminding us that the Christian life isn't necessarily something that's always easy. I think sometimes we want to think that if we're faithful enough, everything will go well. And if we do wrong, then we experience um, problems or discipline or hardship. The author of Hebrews is actually telling us that it's really not that simple. That God is one who is always disciplining us, shaping us, molding us. And the call is that we continue to persevere as we may not always understand what's going on in our lives. We may not always understand why God's doing what He's doing. But it's a reminder that as we walk in Christ and as we are secured in Christ, that we continue to move forward. And so when we look at this, we might say, well, if the Lord's punishing us and disciplining us, does that mean we've all done something wrong? Well, this is what gets us to the health and wealth gospel, doesn't it? And if we're ones who are experiencing blessing, that must mean we're doing everything right. It would seem that that would be the case. But that's not what Hebrews is saying, so I want to emphasize this. And so when we look at this, we ask, why is it that the Lord disciplines us? And if He disciplines us, does this put us in the context of a health and wealth gospel? And is a health and wealth gospel correct or not correct? Maybe it is. What is the author of Hebrews fundamentally teaching us? So as we look at this, we'll see first, considering Jesus, considering discipline, and lastly, considering discipleship. And so let's begin with this invitation to consider Jesus. So Hebrews 12, obviously, comes after verse 11, or chapter 11. <laughs> I guess I'm not good at math. Uh, but Hebrews 12 is coming after chapter 11, giving us the catalog of saints. So there's those who have gone before us. And it's very important to understand the context of chapter 11, because if we do not see verses 1 through 3 as the start of this chapter, we will have very bad theology. We need to understand it is God who is showing His power in the midst of His saints, in the midst of this age, as they walk by faith. And so the fruits of their faith are the saints persevering through the difficult times of this age. But why do they persevere? Because of God's recreative power that is communicated to us in verses 1 through 3. Now we might say, well, maybe we're just reading this into Hebrews 11, and chapter 12 really isn't building on Hebrews 11. But if you notice, actually in the original text it comes out more clearly, but there's this language here that we are surrounded by these witnesses. Now, this witnesses, the same root, is used in 11 verse 39, uh, the commendation, which is also used in verses 1 through 3 of Hebrews 11. And so that's 
the connection going on in chapter 12. Chapter 12 is inviting us now to basically reflect on the information overload of chapter 11. We said, okay, there's all these saints who have walked after the Lord. We have Abraham, who sort of is on, on the high point of Christianity, but yet we have the recollection of Abraham where he does have his struggle, uh, even though it appears from our perspective his life obviously doesn't seem as tough as, say, Elijah or Isaiah or others who have experienced persecution their whole lives. But nevertheless, Abraham still asks the Lord, how do I know this is true? How do I know you're really going to give me a son? How do I know that your promises are real, right? So we see the, the contrast of someone in the midst of blessing, struggles with believing the promises of God, someone obviously in the midst of turmoil, uh, when we think of the other saints who have suffered and been martyred for the faith, they also experience that unrest. So chapter 12 is the invitation for us to start contemplating these realities. We, we read chapter 11, now we go, okay. So we're arriving at this witness of saints who have arrived at glory. But I love how he pictures this, that we're surrounded by them. So we're not seeing them as just didactic truths, in other words, teaching points. The author of Hebrews is saying the Lord brought them to the end. And they're not abstracted from us because remember that they are going to be perfected at their perfect time, verse 40, and they're going to be perfected with us. And so the picture is the sojourn through this earth in chapter 11, the high points, the low points, the struggles, the hardships, and arriving at Mount Zion. And here the author of Hebrews is saying, this is where you are situated today. You are situated looking towards Mount Zion. And you're looking to the saints who are there in the presence of God, not in the full consummate state, but, but there in the presence of God, understanding your sojourn. They're not abstracted from you. They're not receiving a different inheritance than you. They're not looking to a different God than you. So the author of Hebrews is saying, be certain the promises of God are real. There's a testimony before you. You're aligned and identified in that testimony because you share in the great Melchizedekian priest. So we're surrounded by these witnesses. And the author of Hebrews then invites us to truly think about this cloud. Because it's a strange language, isn't it? A cloud of witnesses. What does that mean? They're vapors? They're just ghosts? I mean, well, what does that mean? That, that their lives are really nothing meaningful other than what we remember of them? Well, the cloud is using a language, basically prophetic uh, language. And it's language of a great number of people. It is another way of bringing this into the English. What you think of the great number of people who have sojourned and who have died. Because remember, he said, what more can I say? In other words, I'm just hitting some of the points. But there's so many. And he's saying, contemplate the great many saints who have also walked through this age in light of the redemptive promises of God, longing to receive the full glory, and yet suffering and struggling through this age. The author of Hebrews is saying, put your mind on that reality and understand you are not alone in your unrest, 
the feeling of, of this age, the, the angst we, we may experience at times, you're not alone. The author of Hebrews is saying there's a lot of people that went through that. And God was faithful. He delivered them. So when you think about this great cloud of witnesses, there's this exhortation for us to shed the sin, run with endurance. So now the, the marathon metaphor we've been using sort of as the introduction in Hebrews 11 hits home. Here he's reminding us that, that we're on this marathon. It's not a sprint. It's not a quick race. It's something that's going to drag out, something that we're going to have to pace ourselves through this life. It's not always going to be easy. You're going to feel the, the pain of that training. You're going to experience the setbacks and the things that can be discouraging. Now, he gets rather more concrete as to what, what, what's discouraging. Well, he tells us that we are to lay aside uh, every weight. Uh, when we think about this weight, uh, this is basically anything that will prevent you from doing something. That's, that's the force of this. So anything that, that prevents us from seeing Christ clearly is, is that distraction. Anything that prevents us from consciously understanding who we are in Christ, he's saying we, we have to shed that. The false views we have of our Lord, uh, the false identities, anything that we're putting as a roadblock in, in terms of our own mind, our own idols, our own affections that are contrary to who we are in Christ. Any of that weight needs to be shed. But he says sin which clings so closely. In other words, we're, we're also those who have not arrived at glory. So we have sin. And the author of Hebrews, when he uses this language of shedding sin, it's, it's as conscious as changing clothing. So, you know, we, we don't just, you know, randomly uh, just all of a sudden wake up and then we're changed in a different outfit or ready for church, right? We, we consciously think, well, we're going to put on this clothing or wear this shirt, this combination and put on these shoes, right? There's, there's a conscious thought process. There's a consciousness of getting dressed and undressed and changing our clothing. That's the, the reality the author of Hebrews is saying here. That as consciously as we get dressed for certain circumstances, right? We go to church, we dress one way, lounging around home, we're dressed another way, and, and we present ourselves accordingly. The author of Hebrews is saying this is how we shed sin, in the same level of consciousness. And so as we shed this sin with the same level of consciousness, we, we understand who we are. We are a people who struggle, who need to put to death the things that are contrary to Christ. But before we, we start getting into the mindset of the flesh, he reminds us to run the race with endurance. This is um, just basically, I mean, this comes across in the English just fine. It's running the race with, with that goal, that, that mindset that this is going to be a long race. I've got to prepare my mind for that race. I've got to be conscious of what needs to be done in terms of my focus. So it's, it's looking to the end goal, willing to do whatever it takes it to cross that finish line is what he wants us to have, that, that mindset of a marathon runner. I've got to finish the race. I've got to cross the line, and I will cross the line no matter what. So the author of Hebrews is saying that's, that's what you're doing. Now we say, okay, so where's the line? Right? Because now we can say, okay, well, I'm going to do all these things in the flesh and I'm going to work this out in my own strength. 
The author of Hebrews is saying, let's be careful with this now. Where do we look? We look to Jesus. Who is Jesus? The founder and perfecter of our faith. Hebrews 11, right? Hebrews 11 is starting to make a lot of sense to us now. Because those saints who have this faith gifted to them, the recreative power of God manifesting itself in faith, who's the one who brings us to perfection? Jesus. Who is this Jesus? Well, we've heard from chapter 9, great Melchizedekian priest, right? He's the one who is a, the priest who is from all eternity, has no beginning, has no end, dwells in the full presence of God. Oh, so he's a distant priest who doesn't care. No, Hebrews 4 assured us that he is a priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. And so we are told to draw near to the throne of grace in our time of need. So the author of Hebrews is taking his theology that has been somewhat, at times, maybe pedantic when you read it. I mean, I'll I'll grant that. You kind of go, all right, I get it already. And now the author of Hebrews is turning in chapter 12 and saying, but do you get it? Do you really get it? Because here's the reality. This Christian life isn't a life that is always easy. It has trials. It has struggles. And what do we do? Well, I'm going to be the marathon runner. I'm going to, you know, tighten up my boots. I'm going to tighten up my laces. I'm going to go after it, and I'm going to get up, and I'm going to do what needs to be done. The author of Hebrews is saying, what did Jesus Christ do? Think about what Christ did. Think about how many times Christ would pray. When he's going to the cross, is he saying, well, I'm just going to, you know, tighten up my sandal straps, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to do what I need to do. No. He's praying. He's praying to his Father. So the author of Hebrews is saying, think about what you have. The great Melchizedekian priest who has shed his blood once for all is telling you, call upon me. I can sympathize with your weaknesses even though I'm without sin. I've paid for it. I've redeemed you. Draw near to my throne in your time of need when you feel as if you're going to drop out of the race. And more ideally, even before you get to that point. Because he tells us what Christ has done. He starts taking the sort of the the doctrine or the theory of the atonement, if you will, sort of, and when I say theory, it's not that this is just some idea that's out there, it's kind of interesting, but when I say theory, you think of Hebrews 9, where he just sort of lays it out abstractly, and you think of Christ being offered on the heavenly altar, and it's wonderful theology, and it's rich, and it's profound, But you can think, man, I'm in the midst of hardship. How does that really help me now? The author of Hebrews is saying, okay, let's take this theology from Hebrews 9 that I laid out of the father slaying his son in the heavenly altar, in the heavenly throne room, and cleansing that throne room in the sanctuary so you can draw near. What did Christ do? He's saying, let's bring this down to earth and make it a little more practical. He endured the cross despising the shame. So the author of Hebrews wants us to understand what he has done. When we're exhorted to have this endurance, he's saying there's one who has also endured, Jesus Christ. Now I'm aware you have some of the uh, more, well, I guess it's not too contemporary anymore, but the Federal Vision Theology taking this text and saying Jesus had faith, we have faith, he believed the word of God, we believe the word of God, Jesus is saved by his faithfulness, therefore we are saved by our faithfulness, right? 
So this is one of the verses they use. There's a huge problem with this analogy. There's really an equivocation in terms of trusting the Word of God. Yes, we can find some systematicians or some theologians in the past speaking of Christ's faith before this controversy. But, but what do they mean by that? What they mean is that Jesus believes as he accomplishes the Lord's will, he's the one who's going to attain the promise of heaven. In other words, by his merits, he believes what the Father has said, he will be raised to glory. One of our Big text for this is John 17, the high priestly prayer. Father, I've completed the work you gave me to do. Christ has work to do, has an assignment, does the work. Therefore, Christ is going to be glorified. And so the author of Hebrews is telling us Christ endured through this, right? But it's important to understand the difference now. We're not enduring through the, the trials of this age by our merits to attain heaven by our covenant faithfulness. That's not how we're doing this. We're doing this because Jesus Christ has secured us as a true priest. The point of Hebrews 11, this is why I say verses 1 through 3 is so important. Because in verses 1 through 3, it's the recreative power of God, the work of the Spirit, that is the one that cultivates these fruits of our faith. So are we to bring forth fruits of the faith? Absolutely. I don't deny this. But these fruits of the faith are not the things that make us righteous. It is Christ Jesus and in Christ alone. So when we think about the example of Christ, what is the author of Hebrews saying? He's saying, stop looking at your own lives and your own struggle. Look outside yourself and see the bigger picture. The great Melchizedekian priest has overcome. Jesus Christ has endured the shame, the humiliation of the cross. And where is he now? The author of Hebrews is saying he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He is seated in glory. We do not serve a dead Christ. We serve a resurrected, ascended, glorified Christ. So Hebrews 4, draw near to this priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. This is not an empty promise. It's a reality of who we are. And so this these first two verses reminding us of the significance of Christ. So I wanted to spend, for your encouragement, the bulk of the sermon on these two verses. But going on now briefly, looking at the application of this further. The call for us then to consider discipline, verses 3 through 6. So when we look at this, we understand Christ is the one who endures. We're called to endure the game, or, or the games, the marathon, and to persevere in the faith. But he wants us to understand who he is, that we continue to consider Christ. He endures with sinners, the hostility against himself. So notice the language here, that he may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So the picture here is Christ submitting to foreign powers, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who is the power behind this creation, that all things are created through him. He's a word of God, the agent of God's action and accomplishment, the one who gives us his faith, grants us strength, the one who could have stood up before the, the Roman soldiers and struck them all dead, wiped Israel off the face of the earth, but he didn't do that. 
He endured the hostility of it all so that we can have life. So now he tells us, okay, so how many of you have endured sin and suffered to the point of shedding your own blood? Now, there's two ways that individuals take this. On the one hand, they say, well, this is referring back to martyrdom. Others say, well, this is like the boxing match of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, where he talks about beating his gloves in the air as sort of being just a waste of energy and silliness. I think as there's a metaphor of the games throughout this, just to cut to the chase, the author of Hebrews is calling to our attention that fight to the death, maybe a, a gladiator match or a, a match of, of an intense boxing arena where, yes, there wasn't a lot of blood that was shed. There, there was even those who died in the arena. And so the, the author of Hebrews is saying, how many of you have suffered to that degree? Christ willingly handed himself over to death, laid down his life. So he's saying, how many of you have fought to that degree? And it's a call for us to go, well, I, I guess I haven't. That's a good point uh, in terms of where I am in the Christian life. The author of Hebrews then goes on. And there is a method to my madness when we look at uh, verses 5 and 6. Uh, the, Proverbs, uh, the author of Hebrews cites from Proverbs uh, Proverbs 3, verse 11 and 12, and it's a reminder. Remember we said with Proverbs, and this is the method of my madness, you think of Solomon sending his son out into the world, preparing his son. World's not always going to like you. World's not always going to be nice. Going to be some temptation. Going to be uh, some trickery going on. Be aware. Have your eyes open to this reality. And so as he cites from Proverbs 3, verse 11 and 12, it's this reminder where he says, didn't Solomon tell us? A father disciplines his son. And so as a father disciplines his son, uh, this is done out of love. So now we, we hear this and we say, well, what, what, is this, what does this mean? I mean, he's telling us that God disciplines us. But he goes on. In verses 7 through 11, uh, we have this Old Testament recollection, just in a very quick summary fashion. Right? So the fathers are to discipline their children, and the children are to honor their parents. And why is that? Because as the parents discipline their children, they want them to grow up in the wisdom of the Lord, ideally, right? We, we want to instruct our children, much like Proverbs, hey, you're going out into the world. This place isn't always going to love you. It's not always going to embrace you. Uh, it's not always going to be easy. Persevere through it. And, and here's where you find your hope. Here's your grounding point. Find your grounding point in your Lord. He is faithful to his covenantal promises. It's, this is where you want to orient yourself. And so as we're disciplining our children, this discipline isn't always something that is done to correct bad behavior, right? Discipline is also done to, to shape and mold a, a child to grow up to be a self-sufficient, functioning, mature individual who ultimately and ideally loves the Lord and wants to live for Christ, right? And so the author of Hebrews is saying to us, this is how we need to see the hand of God. As the Lord works in us, he's not disciplining us in the sense that he's trying to be mean to us or vindictive, but the author of Hebrews is saying, we need to understand that when we're going through hard times, it's not necessarily that God has turned his back on us. It may be that God's bringing us to these times 
to mold us and shape us to be the people we ought to be. Now, we can think, what did I do to deserve this? What have I done? What, what's wrong? What needs to be corrected in my life? We're kind of getting there, but this is where the health and wealth gospel sinks in. We think that when we've got something secret or something evil, then necessarily bad things happen. When we do everything right, it means necessarily, you know, um, God's going to bless us, and we're blessed because we've done everything right. Hebrews is telling us more about the theology of the book of Job. And now I believe Job, my, my take on Job, is it's really a commentary on wisdom and, and where we go wrong. Because Job, ironically, is 100% right and 100% wrong at the same time. It's kind of sort of a, a, an irony in the book, isn't it? He, he's right and wrong equally. He's right in the sense that he has not done anything directly to deserve the turmoil he experiences. He's right. He hasn't done anything to deserve it. But he's wrong. And then he turns to God and says, you have no right to do this to me. And what does the Lord say? I am God. I am the Redeemer. This is my creation. You are the redeemed. I am God. And what does Job do at the end? First, he does a, a false repentance. He sort of acts like a two-year-old child, which all of us can do at various times. But then finally, the Lord brings him in another wrestling match as it's presented there. He says, gird up your loins. It's a wrestling match. Battle of wits. Finally, Job puts his hand over his mouth and says, I'm a fool. I have no place to speak. You are God. I am a creature. Who am I to tell the great God of heaven what he ought to do and ought not to do? I do not understand your ways. That is where the Lord is trying to bring Job. To a place of submission to the great God of heaven. And saying, you are the redeemer. I am the one who needs redemption. You are my God. I am the one who is your creature called to follow. So now, as we wrap up the nature of what it means with this discipline and understanding that it's not necessarily a correlation of following the Lord or being faithful and then we receive blessing or unfaithful and then we necessarily receive curse. It's more complicated than that. God shapes us and molds us as he desires. Now, very briefly, Lord willing, where we'll pick up again next week, but as I mentioned, verses 12 and 13, very briefly as transitional verses. But this is where we consider what it means to be a disciple. So now Hebrews is picking up with, with, with the metaphor of the games again, right? So if you're in a marathon you're, or you're in a boxing match, you've been whacked in the head a bunch of times, you, you don't have a clear thought process anymore, uh, you're exhausted in the midst of the race, everything's gone wrong, uh, you're kind of drooping, you're weak. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, straighten up, right? It's, <laughs> it's not something that's very nice when you read this in the original language because the author of Hebrews has basically said, God doesn't always carry us through turmoil. Sometimes he drags us. So you kind of hear that and say, well, that's not really what I want to hear. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, now listen, straighten up. The temptation is to think God is absent. But he's saying, no, actually, when you're going through this turmoil, it means God is very present. And God is present with you, even when you think he has abandoned you. He is with you. So he's saying, now, keep your eyes focused on this God. Let's get our head back in the game. Let's straighten up and let's pursue the Lord. 
So now, so verse 12 is that metaphor, the drooping knees, you know, sort of just the, the weak hands, we're, we're paralyzed is sort of the language that's going on in the original text, that, that we just don't want to move anymore. We feel too weak, too beaten down. And so as the author of Hebrews says, get your, your head back in the game. Verse 13 is where he reminds us again. Straight paths. I mean, this is basically an echo of Proverbs. It's wisdom literature. You know, keep me on the path of righteousness. Keep me on the straight path. And what this means is keep me oriented to you. In the midst of my discipline, in the midst of this hardship, may I still see your hand, which is something that Job had to learn. Because in his mind, I've lived a righteous life, therefore God owes me blessing. And the Lord's saying, son, I am the redeemer. I am the one who determines right and wrong. I am the one who determines what my children receive. I am the one who cares for my children. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, stay in the path, continue to be oriented to heaven, and understand that as we want to get out of joint and we want to be upset, he's saying, be healed. So in other words, he's inviting us to truly contemplate who God is. It's not just moral correction in terms of, of this discipline. It's not just learning something more cognitively in our minds. But it's truly the exhortation for us to have our hearts tuned in to the Lord's purpose. Because it is a reminder that sometimes our great Melchizedekian priest brings us into situations where the only thing we can do is call out to him. As a reminder, this isn't our strength. This isn't our power. It is only in him. But notice the promise, the promise here. Be healed. In other words, the, the Lord's not doing this as a sadist. That's what the author of Hebrews wants us to have clear. This isn't God being a sadist. It is God saying to us, I am healing you, completing you, and bringing you to perfection. Even in the midst of this turmoil, even as I am dragging you through this season of life, I am still caring for you, loving you, and bringing you to perfection. And so the reminder then is that the Christian life is not just a moral persuasion. It's not just living more for God, and as we live more for God, we receive more blessing from God. It's understanding that the Christian life is far more complicated and the discipline of God is far more complicated than trying to avoid a, a, a swat across the face, if you will. And so what is the author of Hebrews teaching us? What do we fundamentally understand? Why is the health and wealth gospel not correct? Well, the health and wealth gospel fundamentally is assuming that the arrangement of perfection uh, before the fall is still an arrangement. You do what's right, you receive blessing. Do what's wrong, you receive discipline. The author of Hebrews is telling us that the discipline of the Lord is to see our whole life in communion with our God. And as we're in communion with our God and we're walking in Christ and the power of His Spirit, it's understanding that God is shaping us and molding us to be the people He wants us to be. This can be through seasons of blessing, this can be through seasons of, of turmoil and, and hardship, seasons where we don't know what the Lord is doing and why the Lord's doing it. We may not feel like we deserve it. And what we learn from Job is, no, 
Maybe you don't deserve it because Job didn't directly deserve everything he experienced. We can be sure of this. God will accomplish his purpose. As we draw near to the great Melchizedekian priest, he understands injustice greater than you can comprehend. He understands turmoil greater than you can even begin to imagine. He understands suffering beyond your comprehension because he is the one who is truly innocent, the one who is truly righteous, and the one who endured hell, turmoil, humiliation at the hands of the creature. And he has emerged triumphant. And because Christ has triumphed, this is a fundamental promise Hebrews wants us to understand. Because Christ has triumphed, you will be brought to completion in him. That's a fundamental promise. Because the great Melchizedekian priest has overcome. He can sympathize with your weaknesses. So when we are tempted to think God is distant or absent or, or doesn't care, we're not understanding who our God is. He is very much present. He is leading us. He is molding us. We need to be confident of that reality. And as we continue to persevere and endure, we do not do this to be worthy. We do this because the Lord has made us worthy. We don't do this to attain. We do this out of gratitude because we know that our Lord has overcome. Let us long for the day when our Lord brings us to perfection with the great cloud of those who have gone before us, knowing that He is a God who will commune with His people for eternity, that we taste now in the power of the Spirit as we walk by faith. Let us see the goodness of our God. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com, or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Thank you.